if they have renter's insurance and it covers all their stuff, the neighbor lights the building on fire and they lose all their stuff, the renter policy now buys all that stuff. When they get all their stuff back, they're less likely to sue you, the landlord, to get their stuff back. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus. And today we're going to be talking about asset protection. This is a great topic because if you're owning your own real estate, there are new liabilities that you're opened up to that may expose you to losing assets. And so I'm not a lawyer here. And going through this, if this is something that's really important, if you're going to own your own stuff, that you need to have a real estate lawyer, somebody who is works in this space. My preference is that they are also real estate investors. So they really know what they're talking about and what you're trying to do and they can set things up for you. Now, a lot of people just say, oh, you just put it in an LLC. Well, that may work, but every LLC is not the same. If your LLC documents are something you pulled off of online, they might be fine, but if you end up in a liability situation and you've got a savvy lawyer on the other side, you might not be the same. And so this is one as I've learned from good lawyers that they know how to pick apart LLC documents. And often if there's a liability situation, they may just look at your LLC documents. And as soon as they see those are intact, it may all go away because you've closed that door. So I'm just going to kind of go through some of the stuff that I've experienced and some of what I've learned just to open your eyes a little bit. But again, if you venture into owning your own assets, I think it's really important to make sure you have a good lawyer and especially lawyers that deal with real estate investment and the type of investment you're doing. And hopefully they're doing the same things themselves. So one simple way to invest in real estate without taking on any liability is to invest passively. When you invest as a limited partner passively, the only thing that's at risk is the money that you've invested. In that situation, they can't come after you for additional funds if something happens within that syndication. Now, the additional funds, you could have a capital call from the syndicator. That's when things aren't going well and they say, we need more money. This is one that you need to read your subscription documents closely, review them with a lawyer again to find out what happens with a capital call. In my experience, most often, if there's a capital call, you can refuse to contribute there. But what happens is if everybody else puts more money in, well, two things happen. First of all, if everybody refuses the capital call, the project may fail and you may lose your money. So this is kind of this going, okay, am I throwing good money at bad or am I doubling down to stabilize the asset and it's got somewhere to go? If you've never been through this or you're not sure what's going on, you've invested and you get a capital call, this is a place to get some advice. It could be legal advice, but it might be really asking the sponsor for the books, for detailed books, and finding a good independent real estate accountant and going through this in detail and what their plan is and getting some advice on 
is this money already gone or what are their chances of succeeding? Because sometimes there'll be a capital call and it's a good deal and it just needs to bridge a gap. Something happened and it goes back to being a very strong deal that's going to have great cash flow with a little cash infusion. But again, if you don't understand what's going on, talk to your lawyer and your accountant to help you understand what this really means. That's about the only time that investing passively, you could have more money at risk. Otherwise, it's just the money you have in the deal. Now, when you start buying your own assets, most people, when they're buying real estate, will use a loan to do it. The reason is, is you're putting less money up up front, so you're putting less money at risk. And that all comes down to where debt comes from. Is that debt secured or unsecured? Almost always, if you're buying real estate, the debt will be secured by the property. But then is there a personal guarantee? So depending on the type of asset and your relationship with the bank and some other factors, they may ask for somebody to guarantee that loan. That is basically the person who that the bank is saying, if this loan defaults, and we take the property and we can't liquidate it at a point that makes us whole. So the bank is losing money. They then go to the loan guarantor who pays the difference. As an investor in a syndication, you're not exposed to this, but if you own the property yourself, you are. Now there are times, and this is one of the reasons why people like syndicating multifamily property, is you can get loans that are unsecured. There is not a personal guarantee or sometimes. And a lot of that has to come with government support for these deals and that they come through a government type agency like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and those types of organizations where when you're looking at commercial deals, often somebody, almost always, somebody has to guarantee those loans. So another risk is if things go bad for you personally and you have to file for bankruptcy, hopefully none of us are going to have to deal with that. But if there are several asset classes that tend to be protected in bankruptcy or from other creditors, if there's an event and people come seeking judgment against you, homesteads, this one I don't understand very well. And again, this is why you need to talk to a lawyer about these, but IRA and pension plans, annuities, life insurance, and social security. The next method of protecting your interests is anonymity. So when creditors come or lawsuit seeking people and they're looking for somebody to sue for whatever reason, or if it's creditors that you're looking for collect on debts and things like that, but especially this more frivolous lawsuits. This is the point of some of the things you can do with corporations and LLCs, and some of it depends on what state you put things in. But when you put assets into entities, it can make it harder for people to find a person to sue if they're going after a person. So some of this can be more complex. There have been some changes to some of the anonymity laws that are in place in different states that used to allow you to own things without anybody knowing who really owned it. This is one, again, can become very complex and very detailed, but there are ways to set up your assets that give you more anonymity and this is something that a good asset protection lawyer can help you do. Now, one option you can check out for anonymity are land trusts. So a trust, basically, you have a trustee and a beneficiary. The trustee holds the land. That's basically the trust. And the beneficiary is the one who would receive proceeds from it. 
Now, the general point of a land trust is it removes your name from the title on the property. So if anybody comes looking and they're doing a search, you're getting sued and they basically do an asset search where they're like, how much do you have? Are you worth going after? When they do that search, your name won't show up because in the public record, it's owned by a trust. Now, I actually saw an ad once online where it was advertising, like set up your trust in five minutes online. I can't say I know enough about what they were doing to know whether that was a good deal or not. But overall, if you're setting up land trust, this should be done with somebody with a lawyer who's experienced in setting up land trust. And I know this show is starting to sound like an advertisement for lawyers, but the reality is that a lot of these legal structures need to be set up right. If they're set up wrong, they don't give you what you were hoping they would give you. And that's why you need somebody doing it who's an expert in the field and knows how to do this. This is the same thing as surgery. You need somebody who specializes in that. Now, I'm a surgeon, but my wife recently had a hip replacement. Did she have me do it? No, because I don't have that experience. I'm not going to do that well. She went to somebody who does that, and they do that, and they do it well, and she's doing great. Did I say hip? It was a knee. Either way, that's why I didn't do it. Um, so this is important with some of these. You'll hear these things thrown around. And I've seen people spend a bunch of time because we're doctors, we want to learn about these things and we delve into them and, and spend hours reading about them. To me, that's a waste of time. What I want to do with my research is find a good attorney who does this and does it well, and I can get references. Now I'm going to go to them and tell them what I need, what I have, and then they can show me how to do it and they can recommend things that I may not even know about. And that all that time I spent reading about trying to figure out what it was, was a waste. Next, business entities are designed to allow a business to have its own liability. Now, the reason for this is if it is encourages more business activity and for businesses to take risk, and this makes an economy stronger. That's why they exist. It's not for unscrupulous people to hide behind. The number of movies and TV shows I've seen that are like, oh, you know, the shell company and all these things that they talk about are rare things. And the point of a corporation or some sort of business entity is really to allow business to run and then people will invest in those businesses and start businesses, but they don't have to risk everything they've already built to invest in a business. Now, there's several different types of ways you can do this. One is a corporation. Beyond that, you have partnerships limited partnerships, LLCs. Within LLCs, there are series LLCs in some states. These, from my understanding, you can't do in every state. The state of the entity has something to do with it, where there are specific states that you get higher degrees of protection and anonymity. And those really, from my impression, were set up because those states said, hey, if we do this, we can build basically a legal business where these legal businesses that set these up will operate in our state and it brings revenue to the state. The primary ones are Nevada, Delaware, and Wyoming. Each state is a little different. And again, there are lawyers who specialize in this and they can give you the reasons why or why not. 
Now, they all give the degree of protection, but they can all work different from a tax standpoint. And again, this is something to talk to your tax advisors about why. And again, I hear people say it all the time, oh, I just put in an LLC and they got the paperwork online and they filed it. And that's really easy to do. If you really know what you're doing and it's a pretty simple thing, there's nothing wrong with that. I've heard people make adamant statements about, oh, there's no reason to have a corporation. You get taxed twice. Well, corporations can do some things that LLCs can't. And some of that is paying for certain expenses like tuition reimbursement or giving everybody in the company a cell phone. And there are other things that can easily within the tax code be paid for through a corporation that an LLC, it doesn't work as well. And so these are specific things that in how you structure your entities, not only decrease legal liability, but decrease your tax liability and help keep more of the money that you want. So again, this is a point where the, the ad goes on, we're engaging lawyers and accountants because they're the professionals who know how to do this. All right, now our next form of asset protection is insurance. We all have it. Insurance is risk mitigation. You pay a set amount of money to protect yourself from possibly losing a bigger amount of money down the road. As doctors, we all know about health insurance. And I'd have to say, from my experience, the most frustrating, difficult to understand, jumbled, maddening mess in the entire insurance industry is health insurance. Most other insurances out there are pretty straightforward and make a lot of sense. So don't get lost if you're a doc on insurance just because you're frustrated with health insurance. Now, what types of insurance are there? We're talking about real estate. So within real estate, you'll have your general policy for the building that you own. This is the one that if something happens to the building, pays for having the building fixed or reconstructed. Now, these different policies aren't all the same. And so again, here we're referring to professionals. And when you get into insuring real estate, a good insurance agent is an awesome person to have on your team because they can walk you through all the things that are involved here. I recently did an insurance review on our fourplex. And so we went through all these things and the building costs. And one of the ones we talked about was, what do we want to put as a complete loss? And there was a special fire part within that. Well, for most of these, when we're looking at construction costs and total building replacement costs, fire's a big deal because buildings can burn down. Well, our building is unique from that because it was actually built with a more commercial construction. It's cinder block and steel with poured concrete floors. So it's very unlikely that the entire structure could burn to the ground because most of it is a non-flammable structure. Even the studs and the walls on the inside are metal studs. So the building as a whole is not very flammable. That being said, you can still have fires. So you need fire insurance. But in assessing your how much insurance you want to buy or what that insurance specifically covers, it was unique for this building from the standpoint that fire likely wouldn't do as much damage. But on the other side, replacement construction costs to build it as is, is more expensive because of the type of construction it has. Now, beyond that with insurance, there's liability insurance. 
you own this property. Now, usually there's liability within the homeowner's policy or the real estate policy, but there may be additional liability insurance you want to buy. That could be an umbrella policy to cover additional things. There could be a loss of income or loss of rent policy that would kick in if there was some sort of disaster that you didn't have tenants paying rent. The other one that I think is really important is renter's insurance. Now, renter's insurance is something that's purchased by the renter, not by the landlord. And what it does is it covers their stuff, their stuff they have in the building. Why is that important? Well, if there's a fire in your building, whether they started it or somebody else started it, and your renter loses all their stuff or a bunch of their important stuff, depending on who you're renting to, and most renters, this may be all they have. And a lot of them don't have a lot of cash reserves set to the side. So if there's a fire, somebody could be in a really difficult space. And this fire doesn't mean this fire was your fault. The fire could have been their fault. It could have been another renter's fault. But when somebody is stuck is when they go looking for somebody to help them out. And that's when talking to a lawyer and filing a lawsuit is something they may do. Now, depending on where you live and the litigation environment, it might be an easy win. It might be a really tough, expensive win with a lot of legal fees to get there. So why then renter's insurance? Because it gives them some money. So if they have renter's insurance and it covers all their stuff, a neighbor lights the building on fire and they lose all their stuff, and they're like, oh, I lost my couch. I lost my bicycle. I lost all my stuff now. And I can't afford to replace it. I can't afford to go buy a new bed. The renter policy now buys all that stuff. When they get all their stuff back, they're less likely to sue you, the landlord, to get their stuff back. That's why you want them to have renter's insurance. And this is something you can require. You put it in your lease, must have renter's insurance and must have proof of insurance. So that means when they sign the lease, they need to show you an up-to-date policy that they have renter's insurance so you know they have it. Now, these policies are typically very inexpensive, and a lot of the online property management software that's out there now, they can actually buy it in the system. So when they sign their lease online, there's a spot there where they can't complete the electronic signatures. They either have to upload a copy of the lease, and then there's even usually something that says, until this uploaded copy has been reviewed and approved, the lease is still pending. So if when you go to approve it, it's a blank piece of paper. It's a copy of, I don't know, the newspaper or whatever, their phone bill. You can be like, nope, not approved. Then the lease does not go into effect. But you can check and they got one there or it makes it easy for them because now they don't have to go find an insurance agent. They don't have to buy it. It's right there within the software and you're not selling them the policy. It's being sold through the property management software from an insurance company and makes it really easy for the tenant to buy their renter's insurance. And again, the point of the tenant having renter's insurance is if they lose all their stuff and their renter's policy pays to replace all their stuff, they're less likely to look at the landlord and want to come after you for it. And it doesn't mean that you're responsible for it. It doesn't mean it's your fault, but they can still file a lawsuit. It's a giant headache. It could cost you legal fees. And it's one reason to make sure that the renters have insurance. 
Other types of business insurance could be insurance against a cyber attack that either locks up your funds, could that affects your tenants. This was more common, I think, before we had these integrated platforms. Another great thing about integrated property management platforms is it puts it in one place and part of what you're buying when you enroll or you're leasing this platform, essentially, and paying your monthly fee is that they're responsible for taking care of it. So it moves some of that liability off your plate versus if you had your own like downloaded QuickBooks that is stored on your computer and has tenants' personal information. and Or if you had a file cabinet that's got your tenants' personal information and somebody breaks in and steals that and then they have an identity theft, you could have liability against that. So if you're storing them that way, you should have insurance to protect that liability. But if all of their personal information is stored in an online platform, now you've offloaded that liability to the people who operate that platform who are now they are responsible for protecting it. Okay, I'm looking at my notes and I got all excited here because I do love the insurance thing and I love my insurance agent, but I skipped over some important stuff with the LLC structuring. And often this is one if you own multiple properties that you're putting each property in its own LLC. And the reason for that is if you have an event at one property, then it limits the liability from that event to that one property. If something happened, you ended up being liable for then only that LLC. So there's a possibility of losing that property, but there's not contagion. It doesn't spread that liability to the other property. So those ones are still safe. Now, some people with higher networks, greater numbers of assets, I've seen will start, will group them together. And it's more that they're saying, you know what? I accept the amount of liability of putting these three houses into one LLC, but it's worth it to me because I don't have to manage three different LLCs. And I've met people who own a hundred different single family properties, and that's the way they invest in real estate. So then instead of having 100 LLCs and the accounting cost of 100 LLCs, they'll put like three houses in each LLC. It's just one approach. It's one, again, to talk to the people who are helping you structure it and understanding what you're trying to do with it and then making a decision on how you want to structure it. There isn't a rule for exactly how things have to be set up. Just while we're still talking about liability, then there's some of the other investing classes, short-term rentals, something that I'm not familiar with. I've never done short-term rentals. I've stayed at Airbnbs. I don't know if there's difference in your liability involved with short-term rentals versus long-term rentals. I could imagine that possibly it's less because in a long-term rental, there's somebody in your building pretty much every night. If you're doing short-term rentals, and you're achieving the same returns, but there's only somebody there a third of the time, then that decreased occupancy to me would seem like a decreased liability. But again, something to discuss with your lawyers, with your insurance people and determining how that affects you. Now, another one type of risk that a lot of people don't think about is time risk. And when you're talking about time risk and protecting the asset is how long you own it. Now, this is a favorite topic of one of my associates because everybody's always like, oh, there's different approaches. You can say, oh, I, I buy stuff and I own it forever and I just collect the cash flow. 
probably a common and one of the most common investing things I hear from people who are new and not even just new, but it kind of fits with Dave Ramsey model. The next step up is that if you're doing value add, you're buying a property, you're improving it, and then you're selling it at a higher price. This could be remodeling a house or in the retail space, you're buying something that's a retail center that's half rented and then you're renting it out. And once it's fully rented, its value goes way up. And then you sell it again to somebody who then wants to invest in fully rented stabilized assets. Now, how this changes your risk, when you tighten the timeline, you decrease your risk to things that could happen. Now, nobody can predict the future, but the shorter time you hold something, the less time there is for the world to turn against you, for you to see things like huge interest rate changes or a change in the political environment. And some even make the argument with some people I know who do land deals. And this is a discussion we had on another show recently was that a lot of people said, well, on a land entitlement deal, I like to make it run for a year because it changes whether how you classify your gains and your taxes go down if you have it over a year. And a recent argument that I heard really just in the last year is, well, if I can get this deal done in nine months and now I'm just going to sit on it and wait for a year so I can save some in taxes, I don't like that idea for two reasons. One, sell it sooner and put that money in another deal. You keep your money working. And over time, you make more because the money's working harder. You may pay a little more in taxes, but you come out with more money in the end. But the other thing is that time risk. The shorter the time you own it, the less chance there is of something going wrong. And that would be could be a change in environment, a natural disaster, a hurricane, a fire, any of those crazy things that could happen that rather than having a property just sitting there waiting to sell, that you've taken that risk off the table when you do shorter term deals. These are all different approaches to investing. And one's not right for everybody, but we're only talking about them here to make you aware of them. Because when I learned about some of these different strategies, I was like, oh my goodness, I thought this was the way you did it. You have to do it this way, or you have to do it that way. That way's the best way. And as doctors, we're kind of prone to that. What's the gold standard? What's the best way to do this operation? Or they should have this medication. It's the best. And if somebody's doing it differently, they get frowned upon because you're not keeping up to standard. And we could talk all day about those things, but it leaves us often with a more linear point of view where when we get into real estate investing, there's not always a best way, a single best way for everybody. The best way may be your best way because you have different goals, different objectives, different risk tolerance. So you're setting things up again to limit your liability and protect your assets through many different strategies. All right, so the last thing I wanna talk about today is IRAs and real estate. Now, the idea here, again, what are IRAs meant to do? They're made to decrease our tax liability or defer our tax liability till we're older and maybe in a different income bracket. Real estate and IRAs becomes a complex thing, and this is really something that is worth discussing with somebody who really knows the space well because when you oftentimes things can happen that if you put real estate in an ira you may lose some of the tax advantages like depreciation now putting real estate in an ira requires something called a self-directed ira 
Now, if you have an online investment platform with TD Ameritrade or Schwab or whoever out there, many of them have things that they call a self-directed IRA. And typically what happens in those is that you sign up for a self-directed or a self-directed 401k, where instead of just being able to invest in what are typically a menu of mutual funds, that you can take your money out of the mutual funds that are managed by the 401k administrators and you can choose your own investments. But in what they call a sector, a self-directed IRA in these platforms, it's not a true self-directed IRA because you can only invest in things that are on the platform. And that is going to be, again, your common securities, stocks, bonds. You can invest in REITs and things like that, but you can't through those buy other assets like precious metals and real estate. So with a true self-directed IRA, you find an administrator of self-directed IRA. And then what happens really is then the IRA holds the asset in the name of the IRA, not in your name. So it puts it in a different tax structure. So again, you want to understand what you're trying to accomplish here because you may lose some tax benefits with real estate with being in the IRA. But at the same time, if you have huge appreciation and you're doing more of an appreciation play or a speculation and you're going to get a big result, you might want it in the IRA. The other thing is to think about how much money are you going to have when you're older? A lot of the time, if you're investing when you're younger, everybody seems to think, well, when I reach retirement, I'm going to have less money because I'm not working anymore. For a lot of real estate investors, that's not true because you spend a lifetime or years building these assets or moving through assets and multiplying and stepping up. And by the time you reach retirement age or 60 or whenever you can dip into these retirement assets, you are actually making more money than you did when you were working. And in this case, if you're pulling assets out of the IRA and paying taxes on it at what you're making at that point, you may have no tax savings and you may have given up some of the real estate tax benefits along the way. So before putting a real estate in an IRA, this is where it really takes a big picture look at what you're trying to accomplish with your whole tax situation. And you do have to make some guesses. You got to look down the road and say, where am I going to be in retirement? I spent most of my professional career it's only really in the last couple of years that I saw what was happening with my real estate business. And I thought, wow, I think there's a very good chance that I may make more money in retirement age than I make now. Now, the other <laughs> part that makes this even more complex is there are ways if you're running your own real estate investments that you may be living off of income that isn't taxable income. One of the ways this can be done is if you buy an asset and you add value to that asset, so now it's worth more, and you do a cash out refi or cash out refinancing. So you pull that money back out, you've captured that added value. Now, if you were to sell the asset and it's worth more, there's potential tax liability there. That can be managed with things like a 1031 exchange. But if you continue to own the asset and you take the money out as a loan, that's not income. It's just a loan. So I've met real estate investors who what they live off of, the money they make is even in the seven figures, but they have no taxable income. 
Now, this is a totally different approach because now you're keeping assets and you're pulling this value out and you're leaving it there with a loan on it. And so you have the time risk that we talked about before. So again, what are you trying to do with how you set that up? And how is your money flowing out of your assets when you reach retirement as part of that? Now, if you're investing passively while you're working until your passive income flow reaches a place that it replaces your income or is enough that you don't need a job anymore or you become work optional and you just work as much as you want to or as much as you enjoy, then you may make less in retirement because while you're working, if you're a high income earner like most doctors, you're making more than you need and you're putting money away to save for the future. So in that case, having a tax advantage plan makes sense because when you pull that money out and it gets taxed, it's at a lower tax bracket. So again, in finishing this episode is the disclaimer. This is not legal advice. It's not accounting advice. It's not tax advice. It's not insurance advice. It's educational. The reason we're talking about this today is as I went through my journey, I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. And I slowly learned as I went along and I was seeking advice from professionals who weren't real estate professionals. They were lawyers who weren't well-versed in real estate investing. They were accounts that weren't well-versed in real estate investing. And until I started buying properties, luckily when I started with rental properties that I ended up with a great insurance agent right away. But if you're going to go into the real estate world, I do recommend here, you find professionals that are experts in this. And ideally, they have investments in real estate and they have investments in real estate like you invest in it and they're passionate about it. If you want to own single family homes, if you want to own small duplexes, quadplexes, have professionals who are doing the same thing and they're excited about it and they're rocking that sector. If you're just a passive investor, Man, have an accountant who's a passive investor. And so they understand what you're doing in that space. This way, you're going to get your maximum benefit because I'm not doing my own taxes anyway anymore. So I might as well be paying somebody to do my taxes. It's helping me get the most benefit out of it. So I hope this show has added some value for you today. Thank you for listening. If there are other topics you want to learn more about, please reach out and let me know and we'll get those covered. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, you know other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.